kind of shifting your mindset to to think long term, broad, preventative versus re, re, you know reacting to what you're seeing in front of you. And there's a lot of these things that you're not going to see. There's you think about the sampling we do. You may sample you know one sample from one truck a day when you're getting you know 100 trucks of different ingredients. And it's not just and, and you got to think beyond grain. We always think about grain, but there's grain products and plant products you know, in bakery meal and all these other ingredients that we use. So you can't just focus solely on one thing. And sometimes the toxin levels can go up, especially in, in the time of year when, when the weather gets warmer and the, you know, the moisture condenses on the north side of the storage container while the sun's shining on the south side and <laughs> the mold can grow yep. and toxins can form. So, so to, to Chris's point, stay vigilant, uh, test a lot but do a good job of sampling so that, that what you're testing is, is meaningful to your operation. Swine. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swinet Podcast and Cargill, where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. Cargill supports the podcast goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and business. Let's get back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Laura Greiner, for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Chris Parks, who is a nutritionist at Provimi slash Cargill. And uh, Don Wiesting from Micronutrition Innovative Lead. How are you today, Don and Chris? Doing well. Thank you. Doing great. Hope you are. Yes, doing well. Thank you. Well, um, for our audience today, I think it would be good to have you both introduce yourselves a little bit, just so that they have a little bit of understanding as to who you are. So, uh, Chris, you're on my screen first, so I'll have you go ahead and do your introduction. <laughs> you got it. I've uh, been with uh, Cargill now since uh, late January, so I guess a little over eight months. I've been working with Cargill um, as a swine nutritionist, working with customers on different things, whether it's uh, products, um, on-farm evaluations, nutritional uh, guidelines, formulating, things like that. Um, also interacting with a lot of with the R&D side with Cargill. And before that, most recently, I was with Smithfield for about five years as their director of nutrition. Perfect. And Don, how about you? So uh, I'm a long-termer with Cargill, 31 years, uh, trained originally as a swine nutritionist out of uh, the University of Illinois, um, joined Cargill in, in capacity as doing swine research and product development. For about the last 20 years, I've had various roles around uh, the use of additives, specialty ingredients in, in swine and other species. So my role today is uh, working on innovation, development, and application of those specialty ingredients, uh, kind of across species. But uh, I have to say, I've, I'm always uh, closest and most comfortable around the swine team. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, we look forward to hearing from both of you. I know you all have a wonderful amount of swine experience. 
One of the uh, topics that has come up recently, obviously, as we're harvesting crop here in the United States is, of course, mycotoxins, right? That tends to be a fall conversation for us. And I think it's a really good one uh, to start with today. It's, it's, you know, where are we in terms of current levels in the U.S. for mycotoxins, primarily in corn, of course, because that's our main ingredient in the swine diets. But we can talk wheat as well for those out west. So could you maybe give us some information as to what we're seeing? Sure, I can start. Um, yeah, so Cargill undertakes a, a pretty extensive uh, corn survey about this time of year. Uh, we, we leverage Cargill buying areas uh, beyond animal nutrition, as well as uh, samples from our customers that, that we analyze. And, and so we end up with several thousand samples of corn through this corn survey before the before the things finished uh, toward the end of the calendar year. Um, the trends we're seeing right now through about uh, 15, 1600 samples we've looked at, um, it's a little bit lower overall, I'd say, in terms of mycotoxin loads this year. But like every year in the United States, you know, there are pockets that are, that are evolving that, that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, as you probably are, Recall last year, you know, we had a lot of Don uh, vomitoxin out in the eastern Corn Belt, and uh, it's it's still out there. It's not quite as high this year. Uh, we seem to see a little bit more Don occurring uh, back into the to the center of the Corn Belt. Uh, in our survey last week, we noticed that. Uh, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Michigan, our averages were all over uh, a half a part per million, which, you know, is not terribly alarming in its own right. But if your average is, is half a part per million, you know, you've got some samples that are significantly higher than that. So, uh, so that's the general trend in the aflatoxin arena. Uh, or excuse me, uh, vomitoxin arena, the aflatoxin uh, a little bit lower this year in the Mid-South than, than in some other years. Um, we've seen some interesting little spikes in like Colorado and Mississippi in our survey, uh, up averaging a little over 10 parts per billion. Um, and Fumonisin levels, which often are pretty high in the Mid-South, seem to have moved just a little bit east this year. So we're seeing some of our highest levels in Tennessee and North Carolina. So. So that's a few of the trends we've been seeing in the in the survey up till now. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I know on my drive across Iowa and Illinois, we see some damaged corn, and certainly there's been some areas of drought in in the Midwest. What impact does that have on those those levels that you're reporting? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We uh, you know we wondered the last couple of years, if we'd see a little bit more aflatoxin in the Western Corn Belt, you know, traditionally aflatoxin ties to, to more drought conditions. Um, hasn't seemed to be, you know, too clear. You know, we got it, had a little bit higher in Nebraska than usual. And, and maybe that Colorado number I mentioned earlier is a little bit there, but we haven't seen a lot in, uh, you know, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana area. Um, and, and then, yeah, some of these late storms, I think maybe that's why we're seeing a little bit of the, 
the dawn starting to go up is is some of these pretty heavy rains we've been getting that are delaying harvest at least in some of the eastern corn belts so we might be seeing uh, some late development of fusarial molds that are producing some dawn and we'll have to keep an eye see if some zeralinone starts popping up too. Yeah, I think that's a great point because that's something we've been very fortunate for the Midwest is that we've had a relatively dry harvest season, which usually means mycotoxin levels are relatively low. But yes, we did have a week where it was cold and wet. And, and so farmers that are maybe taking corn out now might be seeing something a little different than farmers that took corn out a month ago. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yep. So we just talked about mycotoxins, but maybe we should take a step back for some of our individuals and, and really talk about why it's so important to talk about it in swine. So what, what is the concern with mycotoxins in swine? Yeah, I'll jump on, on this one. Um, we're, we're used to, to talking about the classic symptoms with many of these mycotoxins, for example, for vomitoxin, you know, are we seeing high enough levels to have vomiting or feed refusal? Um, Zeralinone is the same type of thing with reproductive issues. Yeah, those are usually the trigger signs. We say, okay, we've got problems. Um, this year doesn't seem to be one of those years where you're going to see many of those outright um, symptoms and signs. We don't have the Don crisis that we did last year or the last two years in the Eastern Corn Belt, as, as Don mentioned. So you're kind of shifting away from obvious signs in the field to really kind of subclinical Type, type situations with these mycotoxins. And that's probably more of, of the focus now moving forward. Um, being on the production side, I was, I was always focused on, you know, for aflatoxin, for example, you know, the regulatory level is 20 parts per billion nursery pigs. So your mindset is, well, if it's below 20, we're okay, life is good. When in reality, a lot of the data out there, especially when it comes to immune suppression, things like that, you don't have to have 20 PPB to get to those to those issues. And so that's really becoming more of the focus um, in this year's crop is not necessarily identifying a major issue. Although there's, again, we talked about earlier, there's gonna be hotspots. We know that there's going to be, you know, Don mentioned Fomonison in, in the East, Eastern North Carolina and in the Northeast part of the state. It's always seems to have Fomonison there. Um, southeastern part of the, the country, aflatoxin you're going to have some of those pockets here and there. So you will see some of those frank signs, but I think overall um, on the average, it's gonna be more of these subclinical issues that we're gonna be dealing with with these, with these pigs, so. But what's the typical mode of action of these, these mycotoxins? You know, each of the toxins has sort of their own, uh, own way of wreaking havoc, so to speak. So, uh, you know, they're, they're they're a pretty uh, diverse assortment of, of molecules and, and they, have, they have a lot of different effects. So for example, you know, uh, Don is probably the one that, that costs us the most in the, in the United States. Um, you know, it, it, its impact is, is largely, it's first felt on feed intake, but then as Chris alluded to, it, it has effects on, uh, suppressing the immune system, uh, reducing antioxidant status, and, and those just you know tend to to pull down the animal uh, along with uh, some frank effects on the mucosa of the uh, of the animal, which can can lead to some 
you know, digestive uh, inefficiencies and even damage along the, the GI tract. Uh, Zeralinone, on the other hand, is is pretty much, uh, you know, it's it's viewed as for its reproductive effect, and and you know, it uh, it acts a lot like an estrogen, but except that it doesn't function as one. It just kind of blocks the receptors and and causes problems with the reproductive system. But it also is immunosuppressant. It can also have some effects on uh, some of the uh, immune cells. Um, as well as as suppressing antioxidant status, um, you know, aflatoxin. You know, in a way, it's the worst actor. It's probably the most uh, toxic and even carcinogenic mycotoxin that we deal with. Uh, as Chris alluded to, you know, we're talking about twenty parts per billion, whereas with some of the others, we're talking, you know, upwards to a part per million. So, so aflatoxin is a very potent toxin. It it tends to wreak havoc on the um, on the liver, which of course is a super important organ and, and can cause then in turn all kinds of systemic effects uh, that that derive from from that damage at the gut level and then in the liver. Um, fumonisin is kind of an interesting actor because it takes a pretty high dose of fumonisin to get a frank, quote unquote, toxic effect. However, uh, it, it seems to be one that aggravates uh, other toxins, makes their, their effects worse, and again, can be kind of immunosuppressant. And it also tends to exacerbate issues with respiratory disease. And that of course can have a, a massive impact on, on a herd uh, performance and health. Chris, you wanna add any comments? Yeah, that, that's an, Fomonison, the ending on Fomonison is an interesting one because the, the data on swine, there's not a ton out there. Um, pulmonary edema in sows, I believe is, some, is one of the things you may see at high levels. Below that, and, and especially because it's not really, it's not a regulated mycotoxin. It's not in the, an action level. It's not an not even, I don't even think it's an advisory level, but it's pretty low there on the radar. But it definitely can have impacts. Um, some of the things I've seen, you know, impact in vitro on alveolar uh, macrophage function. So you think about something like that, you're never going to see that in a herd per se. But it's there. It's going to impact it when you have other respiratory challenges. And that's where I think probably the most important part of these mycotoxins, especially in a crop season like this, come into play. Um, they're, they're quiet. Uh, you're not going to see those outward signs all the time, but they do have an impact. So it almost becomes more important at this point to, to address them early on versus reacting. We tend to react to something we see it in the field. This is one that you're not going to necessarily be able to pick out or tease out of the different production um, or health issues that you're having out there. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I know from previous experience, I've been in, in systems where we've seen what looks like a xeralinone toxicity of some sorts, right? So swollen vulvas, irregular heats, and so forth on the reproductive side. But yet, when we look at the action points or the action levels on the, the results, we're not really seeing anything where we say, oh, zeralinone is above the actionary level that we would typically want to, to respond to. But yet we have zeralinone and we have a little bit of vomitoxin and we have some fumonisin. They're all below the threshold, but acting together, they create a challenge for us. And, and I think that's something that we need to, to really talk about because a lot of times when we do research, we focus on 
xeralanone, or we focus only on vomitoxin and its response to pigs, but they do interact. And so um, let's, let's pick on xeralanone because I'm, I'm talking about it, but what interactions do we typically see with xeralanone or and vomitoxin and, and the others? Yeah, so for, first of all, you know, just so that everybody understands, you know, xeralanone and Don can be produced or are produced generally by the same fusarial uh, species. So the same fusarial uh, molds produce both of those toxins. And an interesting thing we've seen from our survey work is we rarely see uh, an elevated xeralanone sample that doesn't also have elevated Don. Now, they don't always operate the same way in reverse. In other words, we do often see Don levels that are elevated and not have elevated xeralanone. But, but that obviously points to the fact that, hey, they, <laughs> they're going to be present a lot of times you know, together. And, and as you alluded to, Laura, sometimes they're going to look like they're, quote unquote, below threshold levels. But because they, they have, you know, both have aggravating effects on the immune system and antioxidant status, and actually they both can act on the reproductive tract. Obviously, xeralanone is, is much more widely recognized for that. But uh, there's some evolving work with Don that shows, you know, it can also limit like oocyte uh, maturation and embryo development. Uh, both toxins can affect granulosa cell development and, uh, and lead to even reductions in progesterone and estradiol formation. So, you know, you're messing with the hormone levels, you're messing with the reproductive uh, tract functions and, and again, the, the two in, in combination seem to be, um, you know, making matters worse. And I think it's, Chris, you probably want to comment on this, but it's that, that scenario of, well, we look for that xeralanone level and it doesn't seem to be above a threshold level, but boy, there sure seem to be some signs that, that suggest yeah. it's been here. <laughs> I, I've chased after mycotoxins and feed. I can't tell you how many times. And it, it I almost, I, I consider it almost like a thief in the night. By the time you see signs and go back and try to take a feed sample, you know, a lot of times you're not going to find anything. You know, it's it's one of those pulses that may come through. It's we had a recent thing we were discussing with, with a group about having and this was actually Sal's uh, prolapsing kind of went through a little bit of a prolapse storm. It also happened to coincide with cleaning out feed bins and things like that. And I've seen it before, you know, especially in, in we had it in the southeastern United States you know, two to three week storm of prolapses at a sow farm, and then it disappears as, as quickly as it came on. And so you have to look at that and think, well, what, you know, what else happened there? Did something break off, you know, a chunk of something come through that brought these mycotoxins in combination even? Did we just, we, you won't even see that. And that's where your sampling and your analysis, it's hard to pick those things up, you know, especially some of the larger systems, the amount of feedstuffs they go through you know, crisscrossing the country with different ingredients coming from outside the country at times, it's extremely hard to predict where you're going to see some of these issues. So, Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I've, I've had those discussions with other nutritionists, it's even thresholds, right? What, what threshold does a nutritionist consider acceptable and, and when to act? And duralinone is one of those that we, we typically do have a little bit of an argument on because some say they see it at a lower level than what maybe we've seen it in the past. And so what are you finding out about xeralanone 
today. That, that's an interesting one. I'll let Don speak too. We were, he and I were just talking about it the other day, actually. Some of the impacts is around on, on guilt development, for example, or, or, or sow productivity, you know, two, three parodies down the road. You know, he was speaking to the fact that, it, you know, the impact of exposure to around to early on in that animal's life can impact production later on, or even uh, Don even mentioned what intergenerational, you know, generations past that. The last thing I'll say about that is we probably need to think further back into our guilt development programs. Typically, we, you know, we may start to address guilt development when it's just about to become a sow, really, do we need to go all the way back to the nursery, really, and start treating that pig, you know, differently in that sense? Um, but that was something Don and I literally were just talking about was around on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think we're we're seeing uh, more reports out, out uh, in the literature about chronic effects of lower levels on gilts. Um, you know, one of the things that that folks should be aware of is, you know, there is no livestock species that's nearly as sensitive to xeralinone as, as swine, right? Uh, you know, 80 to 85% of consumed xeralinone is, is absorbed. And a lot of that is converted to alpha xeranol, which is even a more potent toxin than, than the xeralinone itself. Whereas in other species, xeralinone is converted a lot of it to beta xeranol, which is actually less toxic. Um, and, and again, you know, xeralinone affects pigs, you know, by uh, affecting follicular development, uh, oocyte numbers, as Chris alluded to, there's at least one study that, that suggests that feeding uh, in late gestation and lactation to a sow, the the next generation of pigs may produce fewer uh, functional oocysts, you know, during their life cycle. So that's kind of a scary thing if you start thinking, <laughs> well, not only do we have to be be watching it this week, we got to be thinking, you know, uh, a generation down the road. So so I think there's a lot we're we're still learning about that, but I think that uh, you know we're we're kind of programmed as as Chris said to to look at kind of that acute effect, but but the chronic effect may be where we're really, these toxins may be kind of eating our lunch. That's a really interesting point. Um, you're right, it's very scary to think about having to think generations back as to what we might have been feeding or, or what feed looked like even a year ago and, and that's impact on its performance, but that's a really interesting conversation around reproduction. Um, Beyond reproduction, you've thrown out a little bit there on immune function and, and some other things. So can we go back to that and just talk a little bit more about what we might see if we're not maybe on a sow farm, but thinking about a finishing or a nursery pig, what other types of impacts our mycotoxins can have on our pigs? Sure, absolutely. Um... You know, I think the the other place besides the sow herd where where we see you know some frank problems are are generally with young animals. I mean, the young animal is developing its its immune capabilities anyway, and um, you know that immune suppression you know just just creates a, a problem. It's going to lead to potential organ damage, uh, depending on the toxin, of course. Um, uh, 
Chris, you may want to also comment on uh, on vaccine uh, efficacy. I know you mentioned that. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's that's another one we've been looking into is is the impact of of these different mycotoxins on immune function, but the ability for the immune system to respond to a vaccine um, to create the the necessary titers to that specific organism or virus, whatever it may be. Um, I think that's part of it too. But again, it goes back to some of these things. You're never going to see that. You're never going to associate that with a, with a mycotoxin in the field. It's going to be, well, we had this challenge out there. They're sick, they're this or that. It never seems to go back to that, but it's there. And I think that's the important thing. I mean, we know PERS vaccination, the impact of Don on PERS vaccination. Um, you know, it decreases efficacy of that vaccine. Mycoplasma vaccination is, is um, decreased by some of the others. You, you know, you have these impacts that, again, it's like a ghost. You never see these things really play out, but it's there. Um, I think about, you know, in terms of production, early nursery, you know, a lot of our consideration there is around looseness and scours, things like that. If you look into um, vomitoxin, uh, specifically domitoxin and some of the others, gut permeability issues, you know, vomitoxin downregulates some of these proteins, the tight junction proteins. So you're, you're inducing, even at low levels, and that's the thing to think about, some of these studies were run, you know, at, at, at half a ppm of Don. I mean, that to me would have been well below the radar. Right. Two to three ppm at times to me, I hate to say it was normal. So that would not even have been on the radar. That had been clean in my thinking. And so you could literally be causing issues in the nursery or even the finisher with looseness, with, with, with gut permeability because of some of these mycotoxins. You know, they also, some of them, you know, can, can impact um, translocation of bacteria, salmonella. These things can now get across that gut barrier. So again, that would become a quote unquote, that's a veterinary issue. You know, well, they're sick. They've got salmonella. That's the problem, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, something in the feed may have been actually leading to that, which I know we don't want to go to yet another <laughs> thing in the feed that could cause that issue. But in reality, that is something to consider at these low levels. It really, for me, it's changed my my strategy and thinking on addressing mycotoxins. Years ago, it would have been, well, if I have higher levels and I see frank conditions, then I'm going to put in a mycotoxin additive or binder. If not, no, I'm not going to save the money. It's not worth it. I, I've moved more to a preventative standpoint that these things are out there. They're always out there. There's more out there now than I think there ever has been and the combinations. And if you want to try and guess where these things are going to impact you, you're going to be up all night. I mean, you're never going to, going to rest from that one. So to me, it's really gone to a strategy basically in all feeds of addressing these things at this point versus we'll just spot treat here and there, you know, and these are some of the reasons when you look at some of these impacts, you know, of, of the mycotoxins. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's actually very unnerving. A half of PPM of Don and yeah, and you can get that impact. And, and certainly, you know, we think about duration of vaccine immunity, and when we get late breaks and finishers with, with health concerns and people always go back to the vaccine. So you're right. Yeah, we don't want another reason to look at feed, but um, that is actually yeah. very, very interesting. Um, so now I'm kind of sitting here going, oh, my gosh, now what do I do? So um, it impacts the immune system. Obviously, there are things that we can do with the immune system function. Um, certainly, we can chase some things around antioxidants. You know, what's what's your typical approach about trying to mitigate some of those those negative consequences? 
Um, well, I think the, yeah, we, <laughs> we tend to as ascribe to the, to the three M's, right? Monitor, mitigate and manage. So uh, we want, <laughs> we, we do start with, you know, as we talked this, started this conversation, you know, we do, we do monitor because I think that's a critical part. Uh, and, and so, you know, have an idea of what we're dealing with. Um, yeah, making sure that, uh, that, you know, our, our, uh, vitamin nutrition, uh, you, you know, uh, the use of, of some additives that, that help support the immune function, make sure your, you know, the antioxidant system is, is quite a, a complex system in the animal, right? So we tend to think about selenium and vitamin E and, and think we're done. The reality is that, uh, you know, especially when your immune system gets activated, right? And you've got inflammation, you know, you've, you basically rely on your antioxidant system to kind of clean up the mess, if you will, <laughs> after that. And, and, you know, it's a little bit like a bank account, you know, when you utilize more antioxidants to clean up after inflammation or frank disease, you know, you've got to replenish those antioxidants. And, and so we, we like to look at a combination of uh, actually plant-based antioxidants as well as vitamin E and, and uh, organic selenium sources so that we have kind of a, a three-prong attack to, to provide antioxidant support um, and, and keep, keep that animal ready to, you know, cope with the stress and, and, build itself back up and, and not mm -hmm. kind of get down to the point where, hey, it's it's too far gone and you basically, you know, have a have a pig who's uh, who's not going to grow from there forward. Sure. That's a Don had a great point on the antioxidants. You think about some of the the impact of, of these mycotoxins is inf general inflammation, if you will. You know, you spoke to the fact that it's going to use up more of those antioxidants in the system. So you have that side of things that you need to replenish. There's some work with vomitoxin with Don that actually shows that not only does it create the inflammation that uses them up, it can actually downregulate some of the enzymatic antioxidants themselves, superoxide dismutase. So it's, you know, and, and others. So it's not only doing, it's multi-pronged at that point. It's mm -hmm. not just using them up. It's actually stopping the body or the animal from creating more to help it in that sense. And that that's kind of where some of the work I know Don's done in the past has evolved from not only just, you know, getting rid of the Don, the, the Don itself, but also bringing in some of these plant-based antioxidants to address some of these downstream issues. So again, the, these, these, these strategies, you know, they evolve over time. You know, we've learned a lot in the past 10 to 15 years, so. That's very intriguing. We have also, and we've been focusing a lot on seralinone and aflatoxin and, and vomitoxin, but lately in some of the conversations I've had, I've heard people bring up T2 again. And, you know, honestly, I always saw T2 on our papers and I knew it was a concern, but I really kind of brushed it off because it was never really at a threshold. But I'm starting to hear more chatter about T2. And I, I know you mentioned, Chris, that we are seeing more and more mycotoxins over the last 10 to 15 years whether it's through us being able to pick them up over assays or they are really, you know, at a higher level out in the field. But T2 seems like one that's got um, kind of stuck on my radar now. So can you tell me a little bit more about T2? 
Yeah, so just for a, a little bit of bookkeeping, uh, you know, T2 is, is one of this large and fairly diverse family uh, referred to as trichothecenes. Um, and so those are, those are mostly produced by fusarial molds. Uh, there's apparently over like 200 uh, <laughs> relatives in the trichothecene family, and they tend to be divided into two types. So the type A includes T2. Uh, it also includes HT2, which is, can either be a metabolite of, of T2 that's formed in the animal, but it can also be formed in plants. Um, uh, diacetoxyscurpinol, that's a mouthful, DAS is how it's commonly abbreviated, and a number of other related compounds. So I think to your point, uh, Laura, I think, you know, tracking T2, you know, we don't see it at what we think is, is a toxic level that often, but I think it may sometimes be a flag. You know, if you see a little bit of T2, you may have some of its ugly cousins kind of hanging out in the, in the bushes there as well. So, so that, uh, you know, that family of uh, uh, trichothecenes are, are, you know, ones that we need to learn more about, but uh, I think you're right. And then they have some nasty effects, you know, T2, is is notable uh, for not only causing immune suppression and release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, but but having a frank effect of damaging the mucosal tissue all the way from you know the mouth to the anus, frankly. And and obviously, once you do damage the mucosa, you you're opening up for all kinds of challenges and and further complications. Uh, including, you know, hemorrhagic bowel syndromes and other other related problems like that. That's one we, we used to only worry about back in, when I was doing more poultry work is, is turkeys mm -hmm. and broilers and mouth lesions. Other than that, you never even thought about it. There's a lot of groups that most likely don't even test for T2. And yet you look in some of the European work, you know, they have an action level for T2 in pigs. So there is something there to be concerned about. And, and as Don mentioned with those mucosal lesions. I mean, that was another one, you know, where, you know, translocation across that barrier, salmonella can actually get across that barrier more easily with T2. And so yet another one that we're probably not even on the radar at this point, but yet the more you look, the more things you're going to realize are out there. And it, it, it makes me think about too, and we're going back to Zeralinone, but several years ago, you know, we never used to look at soybean meal for Zeralinone, things like that. Well, lo and behold, you start looking and guess what's there? So T2 is probably another one of those. The more you look for it, the more you're going to probably start finding these things. Mm -hmm. You know, crop production techniques have changed. No-till agriculture, the environmental you know, weather's changing, all of this. And so you're seeing things pop up in areas that you never used to see certain mycotoxins, you know. Southeast used to be aflatoxin, you know, hot and dry. Well, now you can get vomitoxin in the Southeast just as easily. So I think a lot of the rules are changing at this point when it comes to mycotoxins. Very interesting. The other thing I've heard some discussion about is mast mycotoxins. And I don't really understand much about that. So can you communicate what you're seeing and hearing about mast mycotoxins? Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a few different terms that are used, but yeah, mast mycotoxins, uh, you know, basically 
you know, you're adding a, <laughs> you're adding some kind of a reactive group, uh, an acetyl group, a methyl group, uh, uh, a sugar uh, moiety, and and changing, you know, a little bit of the mycotoxin, but not making it. Uh, <laughs> not making it non-toxic. So, so Don's a good example, right? So, so Don, uh, you know, not only is deoxynevalanol uh, a common molecule, but but quite often it will attach uh, an acetyl group to either the three or the fifteen carbon, and and so then you have acetyl Don. Uh, or you get a glucose, uh, sorry, a glucose attached to like the third carbon, and then you call it Don three glucoside. And and these products, the the tricky thing about them is they they are toxic to the animal, but they aren't always picked up when you're screening, especially if you're doing quick tests. And and even even some of the traditional HPLC or GC type work, you're not always going to pick those up. And so you know, again, you kind of, you know, you, you think you're good when your Don level is, uh, you know, at, at a half a part per million, but you don't know that you might have 250 parts per million of uh, acetyl Don and, and 700 parts per million <laughs> per billion of uh, glucoside. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, that's kind of where the mask concept comes in is you're getting, getting uh, more challenged than you, you know, you're coping with. Mm -hmm. And so from that, what kind of mycotoxins should we be thinking about from an emergent standpoint? Um, you know, I know our assays and our, our tests are limited. We've always talked about that. Well, just, just like you mentioned now, we might see Don, but we know there might be lots of other versions of Don that we're not picking up. So one, you know, what do we see coming down the pipeline and how are we trying to expand our assays, if you will, to try to capture some of these other components that, that really are having an impact on our pigs. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be be an area we we spend a lot of uh, time and effort on the next few years. Um, you know, again, these these mass toxins are an example. Uh, these cousins that we've alluded to within the trichothecene families, you know, they can, you know, they're, you know, are they emerging or that we just haven't quite figured out how to how to you know, account for them entirely. And then, you know, particularly within uh, the fusarial molds, you know, there's another family of, of toxins that we're kind of keeping an eye on. Um, uh, <laughs> I always have to check on the pronunciation. So uh, bovaricin uh, or uh, any eight, Sorry, any eight. So <laughs> these are both peptide uh, type uh, uh, toxins. And honestly, we're not entirely sure how much of an impact they have because we haven't got a lot of pig work or even lab animal work done yet. But there's been some surveys like even in, in the human side where, where these uh, peptide toxins can occur pretty routinely at you know, part per billion levels, but we aren't sure, you know, how much is, is the impact level. So, so I think that's where we're, we're going to have to continue to do, do a lot more work to understand, you know, where are these relatives uh, impacting in combination with the known toxins? Where are these emerging toxins going to fall out? Are they going to be, 
you know, upper part per billion levels or part per million levels before we, we have a problem. So there's, there's lots more to learn. And as Chris said, the, the landscape keeps changing in terms of, uh, uh, conditions that unfortunately make it a little bit easier for the molds to grow. Yes, yes, and you're giving me more pronunciations I have to learn. So <laughs> <laughs> the vocabulary yeah. test for sure. Absolutely, and spell right. I yeah. still some days I can't spell Zerelino to save my life. So <laughs> <laughs> the big Z. Yep. Yes, <laughs> yes, Z O N. That's all I I'll ever write it. Well, so I think this has been a, actually a very interesting conversation and certainly one that's opened my eyes up to, again, thinking about levels of mycotoxins that are particularly below what we would have traditionally defined as a actionary threshold that can have impacts beyond just the typical tail necrosis, swollen vulvas, um, that we're seeing something that's even intergenerational now. As, as potential, and, and certainly we have to keep an eye on upcoming mycotoxins. Um, so I think we've given our audience a lot of things to think about, probably made a few people a little bit nervous, to be honest. So as we wrap up our, our time together, um, could you give our group just a, a few key points to, to think about and, and maybe give them a suggestion for action going forward? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start first just on the on the preventative side and then I mentioned this earlier kind of shifting your mindset to to think long-term broad preventative versus re, re, you know reacting to what you're seeing in front of you and there's a lot of these things that you're not going to see there's you think about the sampling we do you may sample you know one sample from one truck a day when you're getting you know 100 trucks of different ingredients and it's not just and, and you got to think beyond grain we always think about grain but there's grain products and plant products you know, in bakery meal and all these other ingredients that we use. So you can't just focus solely on one thing. You've got to look not just ingredients, but look at your finished feed levels and see what's actually being fed to the animal. So I'd say, you know, you got to keep your, um, you got to keep your vigilance up. You got to keep your, your surveillance strong and, and be able to, to manage what you see. So. Very good, yeah. Chris. How about you, Don? One, one piece of advice that I tend to give people is, you know, and it, it builds off of Chris's point about, you know, sampling one truck a day or, or, or something like that. You know, you, you got to recognize that while the analysis is, is really getting, you know, better and more accurate, it still comes down to good sampling because toxins grow in pockets and molds grow in pockets. And, and so the toxins are there. So they're not uniformly distributed. Um, and so you, you really, you know, you have to be vigilant. And then also you need to, to remember mycotoxin management is a year round thing. So yes, we, we hit it super hard this time of year to get a good read, but, Hey, those molds, you know, when the conditions are right, even in storage, you know, they'll continue producing and, and sometimes the toxin levels can go up, especially in, in the time of year when, when the weather gets warmer and the, you know, the moisture condenses on the north side of the storage container while the sun's shining on the south side and <laughs> the mold can grow yep. and toxins can form. So, so to, to Chris's point, stay vigilant, uh, test a lot but do a good job of sampling so that, that what you're testing is, is meaningful to your operation. Well, perfect. I've certainly enjoyed our conversation today. 
for our audience, this is Dr. Don Giesting and Dr. Chris Parks from Cargill Animal Nutrition. Again, thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. I greatly appreciated it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.